Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief for ADC. Welcome to this month's podcast. Hi, it's Rachel Becko, Senior Editor of Unkind Disease in Childhood. We have a number of provocative and very interesting papers, which uh, I initially lumped under the collective term hurdlers when I wrote the column. That'll become a bit clearer as we go along, but it's essentially about getting over obstacles. Would you agree with that, Rachel? Absolutely. Uh, It's all about barriers and, most importantly, overcoming them. Well, I I can't think of a better place to start than a piece, the piece by John Warner, emeritus professor, um, who takes us through his distinguished lifetime work in paediatric asthma, allergy and general paediatrics. His main advice to us who wish to make a difference in child health is, and I quote, the lesson is don't rely on top-down action. If you feel that action is required, take ownership in your own service. This ownership then requires one to heed the population you're caring for. So what's the process, Rachel, here? It's a bit more than do the trial, get the evidence, implement the change. It sounds very simple that those are the um, uh, parts um, of change in healthcare and uh, preferably uh, a better outcome. But interestingly, we don't really look at things that we might call co-produced guidelines uh, or implementation um, in the wider healthcare system. So where's the patient in all that and and what is their lived experience? Um, And do we have that in mind when we're designing guidelines based on the evidence? And and I was struck by John Warner's um, reminder in his paper where he said, the second definition of evidence-based medicine is the conscientious, explicit and judicious use of current evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients. And it requires the integration of clinical expertise, external evidence and patient values and expectations. So let's have a look at some of the papers in this edition and keeping this lens in mind. The first paper is by Dr. Kamal Chowdhury at the International Centre for Diarrheal Disease in Dhaka, Bangladesh and colleagues. And they asked the question, what are the barriers to seeking timely treatment for severe childhood pneumonia in rural Bangladesh? That's a really good lead into what I guess are a, a mixture of, well, there's a lot of overlap, implementation and qualitative studies, which are, of course, intricately linked. So, and these are issues that are likely to be insoluble by standard algorithms because it gets under the skin of what makes people, I guess, behave the way they do. So the premise for this study was that uh, delayed, delayed treatment of pneumonia can have very bad consequences. And for severe illness, at least, the sooner a child gets to a health facility, the better, the more chance an intervention has of working. So in Bangladesh, where this study was undertaken, um, pneumonia contributes 14% of the annual mortality. And we know additionally that in low and middle income countries, LMICs, that 70% of child deaths um, are due in part, at least, to not seeking care in time. So though we know about barriers in general, such as financial and cultural constraints and interventions that can be put in place to overcome these, we still need to take into account the specific situation of a given population. So this, this study was um, 
uh, runs about seven years ago in a rural Bangladeshi setting. And a research team visited caregivers with children under five who had presented to the healthcare system with pneumonia and asked consent to participate. And the caregivers were interviewed. And this is the crux of the study. So what got in the way of timely treatment? Well, along the way, uh, factors included the following. So failure to uh, recognition of the pneumonia uh, due to both a lack of knowledge and misperception about symptoms, but also uh, consultation with non-formal practitioners, social norms that required mothers to seek permission from male household heads before they could seek healthcare for their children, avoiding community-based public health centres due to their irregular schedules, lack of medical supplies, shortage of inpatient beds, long distance of secondary or tertiary hospitals from households, financial hardships and inability to identify a substitute caregiver for other children at home while their mother accompanied the sick child in hospital. All very pragmatic issues. So what what's what jumps out for you, Rachel? Well, it's a it's a complex um, situation, I'd say. Um, but I'd say uh, if we were to focus on one thing, we might want to focus on the mothers. So um, we talk about something called loosely called health literacy, but if we could translate that into sort of what might mothers do differently given their setting with uh, with children it would be that they would be able to recognize uh, signs and symptoms they would be going to the right people to get advice um, and they wouldn't need to wait for permission now that's a huge undertaking potentially but that is sort of where i think the biggest um change might be and yes there needs to be enough resources but then they might be able to advocate for that Mm. um, and they might be able to sort of change the wider system it's not necessarily uh, just the one thing to be done but i think mothers are key here i agree and health literacy of course is intricately bound up with literacy in general yeah i think that's one of the areas that we might need to focus on a bit more um, yeah. literacy of of mothers um uh, that has a huge impact in the in the wider not just in pneumonia um uh, but in the wider uh, health outcomes for children so we started in uh, rural bangladesh and um see where um the lens might be put in in terms of what's parental or patient experience and we're going to a very different setting and the setting is england but it's not necessarily different in terms of how one might approach um, uh, tackling complex issues so this particular setting is england as i said um, and the authors the joint first authors uh, both from the uk Gemma saint at alderhay in liverpool and matt thomas at the great north children's hospital in newcastle as well as others in the non-tuberculous microbacteria or NTM collaborators group, looked at treating non-tuberculous microbacteria in children with cystic fibrosis. Now that's a that's a mouthful and uh, different from uh, the rural setting of pneumonia we just talked about. But 
not necessarily different in terms of overcoming barriers. The authors report on their cohort of about 70 patients, less than 17 years old, who'd been treated for MTM infection between 2006 and 2017. So a bit uh, back in uh, in time at 11 CF specialist centres, and there's roughly about 50% of the children that were treated uh, in that time. And why is that of interest? Well, the issue is that there seems to be a doubling of the prevalence of NTM infections in children with CF in the UK uh, to about 3% from 2015. Is that a problem? Well, yes. It could be a real change or it could be simply a reflection of that we're getting better at looking for this and do do it more routinely or that the microbiological techniques are now more sensitive. But it's interesting follow, to follow the, the way in which this has evolved. And there's, um, I think it's fair to say there's a, there's a pretty good causality narrative with the obvious reservations from observational data. But the, bo- the bottom line is that um, whatever proportion of lung malfunction that mycobacteria exposure contributes to a treating mycobacteria infection does seem to make a difference to lung function and that might be a direct effect or it might be an indirect anti-inflammatory effect we don't know but i i'm enjoying seeing this story develop so the developing of this story is about we've identified a potential um, intervention um, that might reduce uh, the underwater effects, especially in CF, um, mm. of these uh, infections. But it comes at a price, how we treat these infections. Yes. Um, do we know how we do that? Um, are there guidelines, standards? And and what has informed these guidelines and standards? And I think the, the authors make the case that um, some of it, is some of what it is that we uh, offer uh, to children with these diseases for good reason, because not being able to be transplanted is a is a big deal. Mm. Uh, for instance, which could be a consequence of uh, ongoing infection with this um, with these uh, with these bugs. But there is different ways of treating, um, and the authors describe these different ways. Some of it is standard, but not necessarily everything. And in trying to define what would be a shared way of treating uh, the uh, the young people? Uh, it may be that we also need to hear from them what's burdensome, what's not, in terms of long antibiotic treatment. Absolutely, and um, it's it's you know, e- easier said than actually done in terms of the extra load on on, on the family. Even if the treatment is ambulatory, it's still a lot of extra pressure on um, on individual family. We don't really know whether uh, oral treatment is as good. Mycobacteria tuberculosis infection is, of course, treated by long oral courses. And we don't really know the role of um, either primary prevention or long-term suppression. So lo- lots of unanswered stuff out there, but I, I'd, li- I'd, I'd like to think this paper will get people thinking about it and we could also bring this round to do, do we do we know what the what the patient's real experience is which brings us round to um 
a couple of new papers on um which are very much about um experiences whether strictly patients or or not but um two papers that look at refugees so uh one is a uh an evaluation of a pathway for unaccompanied asylum seeking children by alice armitage and colleagues and the crux of this paper is that uh at the end of March 2019, so recent past, there were about 5,000 unaccompanied asylum-seeking children in England. Most were males aged 16 or 17, and many of you will be aware of the, 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 the age, refugee age um, debate. How might we respond to this group's health needs? So um, evidence-based guidelines for initial health assessment and follow-up are scant. This is an extremely vulnerable population. Um, we know that children in this population frequently suffer physical and emotional trauma um, in the country from which they came, or even during the journey. And um, some, of course, taking several years, literally, to um, to get to uh, Western Europe. And they would have suffered almost all. Uh, no, I would think I would say all would have suffered hardship and reduced access to healthcare during that transitional period. The authors of the paper put forward a multidisciplinary approach to the needs of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. And in essence, they describe a system with physical and mental health practitioners as well as social services input in one appointment. And that, of course, is important in terms of capturing um, as many children as possible because a lot don't come back. And this integrated pathway model has been in place in the author's institution in their area since 2016. So what to look out for in terms of barriers, names and dates of birth may be inconsistent, appropriate interpreters are essential, otherwise they'll be one they will almost guaranteed a degree of misunderstanding and follow-ups, as I, as I mentioned, um, have a very high DNA rate. So what next? Well, second paper um, in this edition on displaced children is from the Southern Hemisphere by Sarah Cherry at the Refugee Health Service at Perth Children's Hospital, where they have enormous refugee experience. Um, and they describe a cohort of children Syrian, of Syrian and Iraqi origin who fled their countries and the health needs that they had. Um, again, the emphasis on it is on a multidisciplinary approach. I uh, I took away several things really. So one is the multidisciplinary approach um, that is described in 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 both papers. This is not just an isolated physical health situation. You you can't just do with a um, maybe a general paediatrician who might do a follow up uh, for a, a infectious disease consult. It's far broader than that. Um, and having the people around at the table at the time where they child or young person is is extremely important so that there can be a, a conf configuration of responses that approaches that child's need because it might be um, that uh, they require more of uh, an input uh, for emotional uh, health care it might be education uh, sexual health uh, there's a, a very disturbing uh, signal that boys and and girls uh, will have been um, sexually abused, might have been uh, trafficked, um, they might have fled forced marriage. So there's a 
there's a very individual uh, response required and therefore we need a reflection of those needs in the in maybe in a panel that that sees them um, and might be able to uh, help them along and it's and it's an issue that you know you can't rely on usual things so so barriers of even identifying who is who's in the room with you um, it's it's, it's language but it's also it might be the name might be slightly different as you said or the date of birth and and i think we need to be careful to sort of say um lump everything together so refugee or unaccompanied asylum seeker would be the same thing or children from uh syria or iraq might have similar um experiences not necessarily so the duration might be different the exposure to refugee camps as the as the um the authors have uh, have shown in their paper it's not one size fits all and we need to ask the uh the children young people what's important to them and i think yes. that's what's happening in in the london cohort is a follow-up where that's specifically uh, an area uh, to, to focus on yes because successful implementation is uh, is going to depend on their ideas their thoughts their engagement absolutely Thanks, Rachel. Very interesting discussion. So I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Looking forward to next month's already. Uh, lots of new material on both on the website, adc.bmj.com, and in this current issue. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.